This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this episode of the show, I sit down with Lauren Maffeo to talk about data governance. Lauren Maffeo is an award-winning designer and an analyst who currently works as a service designer at Steampunk, a human-centered design firm serving the federal government. She's also a founding editor of Springer's AI and Ethics Journal and an adjunct lecturer in the interaction design at the George Washington University. Her first book, Designing Data Governance from the Ground Up, is available from the Pragmatic Programmers. Lauren has written for Harvard Data Science Review, The Financial Times, and The Guardian, among other publications. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts, a former member of the Association for Computing Machinery's Distinguished Speaker Program, and a member of the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences, where she helps judge the Webby Awards. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Deb. So, Lauren, let's start off with a really basic question. What is data governance? That's a great question. I I define it often uh, for technologists and folks outside of tech alike. And when I talk about data governance, I'm talking about a strategy to manage the people, processes, and tools used to manage big data at scale. So it's not one singular tool, technique, or framework. It's really the comprehensive strategy that you have for managing the collective people, processes, and tools in all roles across all stacks to uh, manage big data in an ethical, safe way that is also driving business value. And I know that that phrase, driving business value, is very commercial. But the reason I emphasize it is because I see a lot of tech and data projects being deployed without any particular use case or any clear end goal. And I think that's very problematic, whether you are in the commercial space, whether you're in academia, any data usage should always have a clearly defined purpose along with clearly defined parameters for which data you're using and why. And so in that broader context, data governance is the collective work done to ensure that the right people, processes, and tools are being used for the data at hand for any particular project. And what's at stake? Why does a company need to do that? Or why does a project need to have that framework there from the beginning? What goes wrong if you don't have a data governance structure ready in place before you start collecting data? Yeah, so before my current role as a service designer working on data-specific projects, I was a research analyst at Gartner for many years where I specialized on covering trends in business intelligence cloud software for small and mid-sized business owners. Uh, When we talk about the cloud, we're talking about a architectural environment where your data lives, and that is often used in contrast to an on-premise environment, which is not built where software is. So basically the cloud is software and on-premise environments are physical centers where your data lives. And we're increasingly seeing businesses move towards cloud environments. That means that their data is hosted by somebody else, whether it's Amazon or Microsoft. And so what typically happens is that 
most organizations still are not uh, really at a stage of data maturity that they should be. By data maturity, that really means, can you answer the question, is the data that I have in my organization up to our predefined quality standards and fit for consumption by both my colleagues and external partners. And the reality is that for years, most organizations have not been able to answer that question in an affirmative because they lack the the processes and quality standards in place that are necessary to uh, manage data at scale in a way that is fit for use. And so the end result of this is that we have endless amounts of data that are being produced every day. And, the, and most of it is of very poor quality. And one of the consequences of that is that we are not able to trust uh, the data as well as we should. And so that is a, an enormous problem that, uh, that tends to exist in the world today. And that's why it's really important to have uh, data quality standards at the outset. Can you give us a case where this goes wrong? I'm trying to visualize why this would be a problem. Is there like a high profile case or something that listeners might have in mind that could showcase where this goes catastrophically wrong or what kinds of damage gets done when you don't have this framework? Talk to us about that. I can think of two uh, examples. One is that a few years ago, Amazon uh, made the news because they had deployed an algorithm which was used to sort through resumes. So it was deployed in an HR context. It was meant to pre-screen applicants for roles and weed out that process of going through hundreds of thousands of applications against predefined standards in order to create less legwork for the HR team. And it, Amazon made the news because this algorithm was it was found to have been discriminating against uh, women candidates who identified as women for particular roles. And what probably happened is that some of those predefined standards might have included that they needed to have been a CEO or they might have needed to hold a certain job title that is more senior. And we know that most of those roles have historically been held by men. So if it, the Amazon trained its algorithm on that particular data, it's not that they were trying to discriminate against women or that they did this intentionally, but that's an example of how indirect bias within algorithms can occur. And when this was found to be public, Amazon had no choice but to take that algorithm out of production, which means that not only did it inadvertently discriminate against women in, uh, applicants for roles, but it also uh, decreased trust. It was a huge PR nightmare for them. And then they weren't even able to use the technology, which means that a lot of people worked on that algorithm and a lot of money was spent, a lot of effort, all for nothing, because ultimately it had to be taken out of use. And so that's one example. Another example of why this can be really challenging is in the self-driving car sphere. So voice recognition software, depending on how it's trained, if it's not trained on the right set of inflection tones, if it's not trained uh, on, on enough voices or languages, data on, AI only knows from the data that it's trained on. And so if the training data is too narrow, you can end up having a voice recognition system that does not recognize the voice of a woman, or it does not recognize a Spanish accent or things of that nature. Now think about voice recognition software in the context of a self-driving car. If you are using a self-driving car, presumably you want some degree of control over the car and you would want to be able to give it a voice command so that it would be able to respond to you. 
you. If the voice recognition software doesn't recognize your voice and doesn't respond to it, in theory, that could be extremely problematic, if not dangerous. And we know that trust in self-driving car technology is quite low for many reasons, and that is one of them. So in extreme cases, this could be deadly. Uh, and even if it's not deadly, it has very detrimental impacts on people's professions, their personal lives. I think that's the biggest issue that I see is that we we talk so often in academia, in the industry, about the future of AI and whether AI will become sentient. And the reality is that in today, today's world, so much of our lives, it, so many decisions made today about our lives are made by algorithms that we have no idea how they were built. We don't know how they're deployed. We don't know what decisions they're making about us. And there's very little public awareness of that, which I think is a huge challenge. And I do think that's a reason why many organizations have been somewhat resistant to data governance, because the appetite for it amongst the public is not there. Can you give us a bit of a history of data governance? When did data governance start to get on the radar of companies and why? I would argue that we're not there yet. So I've spent, I'm talking to you at the Open Source Summit in Vancouver. I've been here all week and, and the Open Source Summit is run by the Linux Foundation, which is the home of 800 open source projects uh, uh, doing everything from work on the Linux kernel to software supply chains. They just stood up a project called OpenSSF, which talks about open source security. When we talk about open source, we're talking about technology where the code is available for public use and consumption and edits. So in so anybody could go on to a site called GitHub, they could look up the code for a particular project and they would be able to not only view it and see how it was made, but also to contribute to it if they wanted to. So that's what we're talking about in the context of open source. And it's often talked about in the context of software. But now we apply that to, to data. And my takeaway coming away from this conference is that we, I heard so much, for instance, about open source security. I was at this conference five years ago when this was not a consideration. The open source community writ large was not thinking about how to make things secure. And now they are. Why? Because they have had the industry has had a lot of very high profile breaches in recent years. And the number of breaches is only increasing. I don't think we've reached that inflection point with data yet. And I was speaking to somebody earlier who said, what do you think it's going to take for the open source community, for commercial organizations, for academia to take data governance seriously? And I said, I think it's going to take some catastrophe. I think it's going to take some massive widespread data breach where a lot of personally identifiable information is leaked and the, the consequences for many people, probably millions of people, are so enormous that the commercial and policy worlds can no longer ignore data governance. And I remember years ago, I read a blog post from a historian who argued that the arc of progress goes forward after catastrophe. And that sounds really drastic until I read the whole article and then thought about it, not just in the context of history, but in the context of technology. And I think as people, we are inherently 
resistant to change. We will adapt because we have to, because it's a, it's a survive or die thing, but you will wait until the last possible second until the stakes are so high that you can no longer ignore it. And so in terms of data governance, I really feel like we are in the earliest stages of maturity. We're still figuring out what it looks like and what those standards should be. I think if we talk five years from now, we will be having a different conversation. But for now, I would say the we're in the genesis of it. So what kind of catastrophe are you talking about here? What's keeping you up at night? What kind of catastrophe do you think might propel some of this data governance institutionalization? One of the reasons for resistance to change, especially amongst pe- uh, people in very highly regulated industries like healthcare, law, medicine, is because those industries hold a lot of very sensitive data about people that's known as personally identifiable information. And that is supposed to be masked throughout the algorithmic training process, meaning that you are supposed to use particular techniques to ensure that the data that is very sensitive, such as a social security number, is not viewed by anybody during the training process and that it will not be leaked once it is re- once the model is deployed. And ma- there are PII masking techniques available. It is built into many tools that are used to build AI technology. But I think what's going to happen is that there is eventually going to be a massive data breach of a hospital or a financial firm. Uh, We already see this happen to some degree, but I don't think it has happened to a big enough degree where it inspired that change necessary to move forward. And so I think that is unfortunately what it might take. I think it might take many people losing a lot of very sensitive data about themselves. Maybe it, maybe it's data that will be sold on a on a black market, uh, and that is really what's going to drive this change forward. I want to shift to talk a little bit about the ethics of data governance and the relationship between data governance as a kind of institutional and structural way to mitigate risk for companies on the one hand, and data governance on the other hand as an institutionalized and, and mechanized way to mitigate harm. It seems to me like minimizing risk on the one hand and minimizing harm on the other hand sometimes overlap in terms of like a Venn diagram, but that they're also separate things. In your book, when you talk about data governance, you talk about, and I'm going to quote you here, investing in choosing success metrics, selecting data stewards, starting with small scale projects, and doing data quality assurance. That's the quote, in ways that connect with support and further a company or business's interests. But data is, of course, more than numbers that can be used to further a company's interests. After all, data comes from somewhere, almost always from humans and from observing and collecting and measuring their behavior, almost always to move or change that behavior in ways that benefit the company or business who is collecting that data. And oftentimes, that measurement is in conflict with the best interests of those whose behaviors are being measured. In my research and and in interviews, often I see that these interests are at odd with important values about data privacy or even what uses of data are best for society, or at least not harmful to it. How do you reconcile those interests when they compete, as they frequently do? Well, I love that you said the quiet part out loud, which is the fact that commercial interests do not always align with what is best for users and customers, uh, because that is not something that really I have ever heard somebody in a C-suite role admit. They will say up and down that they exist to serve their customers first and foremost, and they have their customers and their users' best interests at heart. And I can tell you as a practicing service designer that it goes back to that quote, I can't believe what you say because 
because I see what you do. And the reality is that as the, as the service designer on the team, I am my job is to be the user advocate on that team. It is to talk to the end users of whichever product or service I'm designing, figure out what they need from it, what their pain points are with the process today, ask them what they would change if they could, and then to work with the technical team to design a solution that is more an improvement over what they currently do while also meeting the, the requirements of the client. That sounds straightforward enough, but very quickly you often see that whatever users say they want is for whatever reason at odds with what the client wants or what is at odds with what they consider to be their better profit margin. And that is where you end up having really difficult conversations. And what I realized writing this book is that I first started investigating AI ethics as an analyst when I, at Gartner, I, I co-authored a paper on uh, cool vendors in speech and natural language processing. And so I've covered software tools that try to mitigate bias in AI as best they can. And what I've ultimately come to realize is that governance is a form of ethics. And so the fact that you have quality standards at all, the fact that you are strategic about using the right people, processes, and tools for per business use case, the fact that you have defined which sensitive data you are going to use or not use um, to, to mitigate indirect bias, which is when different variables interact with each other during the training process, that is all ethics. And so in the book, I talk about a seven-step framework that Gartner came up with where they say you should be using this, this framework to measure your own data governance program, and it, it includes seven different areas, including trust and transparency, security, education, and ethics is one of them. And as you say, many of these different seven steps overlap with each other, but in my opinion, the entire job of data governance is its own form of ethics. It's its own form of acting strategically with with everyone's best interest in mind. It does not mean that you won't make mistakes. It does not mean that it is foolproof, but the act of doing it is, I would argue, an ethical act. And if you are not publishing data or working with data that adheres to any standards that you have set and you have reasons for why you've set them, you have serious work to do when it comes to the ethics of your data. I actually want to talk about the workers specifically because I think sometimes we talk about this work and the structures without talking about the people who are doing that work. And I'm so compelled oftentimes by data governance workers and work because when I talk to those people, the people doing that work, they say that this is a sector in the tech industry where largely you have people who are genuinely interested in finding ethical solutions and who are ethically minded, which is in my experience somewhat rare in the tech industry. And so I wanted to ask after the role of data compliance workers specifically and ethics workers more broadly, and what role they play in the overarching corporate or business structure or culture. What kinds of people go into data governance? When I talk about how ethics works or fails in a company, I talk about the need for ethics to be intentional, meaning you don't kind of end up with ethical solutions or ethical frameworks just by stumbling into them or practicing business as usual, but rather uh, an ethical framework really has to be kind of intentionally built. Ethics have to be intentionally practiced and they have to be, I think, developed by ethically minded people in order for this to work. Because if you have the leadership who does not buy into an ethical framework, 
then what happens is that you have a, you know, a, a marketing team or a sales team or a financial team that says that a solution to a particular problem lies in the directive that would generate more profit. And then you have the ethics team at odds with that saying that, well, if we do that, it's actually going to cause damage. And the profit group says, yeah, but if you institute the ethics team and what they're saying in next steps or in the direction that the company goes, if you do that, the profit team will tell you that if you institute the ethics team's recommendation, you're going to lose 3% growth or 3% profit. And if the leadership is not ethically minded, then every single time they're going to go with the growth team or the sales team or the market team or the financial team. So I say that leadership has to be ethical, really, uh, from the leadership flowing downwards, and that it also has to be from the bottom up, that is to say, at the foundations of the culture. That is to say, it can't be like a prosthetic model added after the product is built or shipped, that it really has to be set there from the beginning. I completely agree with that statement. I talk in the book about how to find the right executive sponsor for your data governance council. And the reason I do that is because I also believe that this is really a top-down effort that needs to be supported by the most senior person in an organization. Data governance is a long game. It's a marathon, not a sprint, and it takes a lot of work, a lot of coalition building and buy-in. It is not an easy or short process. It's also, it also, like any big initiative, costs money, and I do not see organizations succeeding at this work in a meaningful way if they do not have the personal and financial support of the most senior person in an organization. When you look at big tech screw-ups like that have happened at big-name companies, Companies, it's very tempting for the public to think, well, why didn't somebody say something? Why did? Why was this allowed to happen? Who were all of these workers who were just turning up their nose and allowing this to occur? And what ha often happens is that journalists do some investigating and they find out that people did ring the alarm bells. In many cases, many people rang alarm bells to the most C-suite people, informing them of the risks, informing them of possible mitigation strategies, both at the technical and policy levels, and they weren't listened to and they were ignored. And so that is what more often happens. Of course, there is an action, there is the lack of knowledge or just not having the insight into what's going on and which decisions are being made. But the flip side of that is having cross-functional people in an organization raise the red flag about risk and they are not listened to. And that's why I think it's so important that you do need that support from the most senior leadership to do this meaningfully. The other thing that strikes me is that we're talking right now at a really difficult time for the tech industry. I think we are seeing more layoffs than ever right now since probably the dot-com bust, and that was almost two decades ago now. I don't even think layoffs in tech were this widespread during the last Great Recession. And, and very often the teams that are cut during those processes are the Editor, the editorial team, the respon the responsible AI team, the user researchers. I mean, the and so when companies do that, they're making a very clear statement about what they value because whenever they talk about cuts to their workforce, it's always in the context of we did what we needed to make sure that our business survives. And when you 
cut people from those aspects of your leadership, you're making a very clear statement about what your company needs in order to survive. They're they're effectively saying like we don't need a responsible AI team in order to survive, which probably means we don't need somebody with a more academic background who's going to ask hard questions about what we should or shouldn't be doing. It can also mean that they are getting rid of their researchers who are going to be talking to users and they feel the answers for what users say they need from a service would misalign with what they want to offer. So that in and of itself says a lot. And one of the things that I have learned is that there is too much data in the world today for one team or one person to manage it all. So even if you are the most senior data leader in a company, if you're the chief data officer, you cannot do data governance alone. At bare minimum, you need buy-in from the rest of your colleagues in order to make it succeed. But realistically speaking, you also need them to help you manage the data in their respective domains, whether it's sales, marketing, whatever it may be. And so it really does have to be a cross-functional effort. And I think we as a society have to move away from this idea that data is not my responsibility. I'm not a data scientist. I'm not a chief data officer. So I don't have to understand how algorithms work. I don't have to understand whether the data that I am ingesting for my team is fit for use or whether if it's it's of sound quality. We have to move away from that because as long as we we keep passing the buck to somebody else, this problem is not going to resolve in a meaningful way. Okay, I have so many questions that are coming up right now. What do you think will happen when these companies cut their ethics teams, which you say, and and I agree uh, with you, is going to be the first thing to go? A couple of weeks ago, I talked to somebody from the Integrity Institute about this new economy where ethics workers and integrity workers or public interest technology workers People who, in general, whatever you want to call them, are there to be responsible for measuring or mitigating harms, oftentimes in ways that mitigate profits. And those folks are losing their jobs. And of course, I think about what happened, or at least my interpretation of what happened to ignite this, which is that you know a couple of months ago, Elon Musk came to Twitter and cut a bunch of those teams, and immediately Twitter's valuation escalated. And what happened was that the investors saw this. And now, if you're a CEO and you're beholden to the demonstration of profit to your investors, uh, that's your obligation. And so Twitter immediately saw an immense rise in its valuation and created a clear signal, which is that if you cut these teams, you will generate more profit because not only are you having to pay fewer workers, but you have fewer bottlenecks to get your product shipped through in terms of people who might be stopping or questioning or mitigating your ability to maximize profits. And other tech companies saw this and they said, well, we overhired to begin with and these kinds of responsible tech workers are part of what is costing us profit. And then Twitter offered them a model of both how to generate more profit and to find a more valuable uh, valuation. And there wasn't, in the case of Twitter, all that much pushback or change in the business in terms of its appearance to the public or in terms of its overall operations. So Twitter saw that they could do this without any consequences, and so they started to let go of these tech workers, and we start to see, I think, as a series of feedback loops in the industry where the, the protections are removed and the people who provide those protections are no longer in the industry. And as a result of that, profit escalates as value and ethics teams disperse. So I'm curious what you see happening and what kinds of consequences you might see ensuing from this. Yeah, when you when we think about that particular example of an ethics team getting cut and the share price going up, what 
comes to mind is this concept. I mean, if you are a publicly traded company, then you you do exist to drive the biggest profit for your state your shareholders, which means that if I, let's say, own 10 pieces of stock in Twitter, Twitter would say that they're they exist to help me make the largest profit possible. And that they will do that is the end goal that is the business strategy and they will do whatever it takes to achieve that goal even if it means taking particular actions which harm users and and harm shareholders like i think many shareholders use twitter and so i think what what is important to think about in that context is what is the role of a publicly traded company? A publicly traded company does exist in this capitalistic U.S. market to maximize profit for shareholders. And so if you are doing any type of work that conflicts with that, if you are raising flags that people think could dip profits even a little, that is a risk. And so I think it's very important, especially for students, to be thinking about different model, different models for doing business and having a career. So if that idea of working for an organization that, that exists first and foremost to maximize profit for shareholders, that's a sign to me that if you're, if that you're not comfortable with that, you might be better working in a 501c3. You might be better working for a different kind of social enterprise. There are many career options available, especially for students in data science and information science. And I think that's a great benefit for them because they that skill set of data science and information science is so valuable. Every organization needs it, whether they are a mom and pop store or they are a big five tech firm. And so you have a lot of autonomy as a student to figure out which type of environment you want to work in. And of course, not all publicly traded companies are the same. They do not have the same leadership. But I do think it's important to think about, I mean, we talk about governance. And, and so I would encourage people, especially if they're students, to think about what is the governance structure that I am most comfortable working under? Because the reality is, is that if you go into a for-profit company, you they will value you until they don't. And, I, and again, I'm speaking in a U.S. context here because in the around the world, employment law differs very widely. Um, and even in the federal government, for instance, employment differs widely. Uh, but broadly speaking, if you work for a commercial U.S. enterprise, you are working under a profit model which optimizes shareholder value over ethical decisions in many cases. And I and I think the, the the biggest thing to do first is to say that because it, it's it's still it can be a controversial statement when it's just a fact. I mean that again, that is why publicly traded companies exist in the first place. And so anything that is at odds with that, and I am not saying it's right, I'm not saying I like it, but it, I think it's a consequence of that financial structure. I promised a while back in our conversation to talk about the tech workers themselves. So I wanted to go back into this before we move on. Can you tell us a little bit about the people who go into data governance jobs? What kinds of backgrounds do they have? Is there a kind of personality or a set of dedicated interests or skills that compel people to go into this line of work? I think a few types of people come to mind. One is that I think this work is well suited to folks with legal backgrounds because not only do they have the natural inclination and aptitude for compliance and, and figuring out what that looks like, but their job is also to survey the landscape of regulation to make sure 
that companies and employees and users are protected from harm, from breaking those rules. Uh, and so they they are actually very well suited. Um, a compl- and I hesitate to say that because many people shy away from data governance because they purely associate it with legal requirements that are going to prevent them from doing what they want to do. Uh, We all, if you've ever worked with a legal department, it can certainly be a bottleneck. And so that's not an association that many people have that is positive. But at the same time, I do think that, that having a lawyer who can serve as a data steward uh, and really survey that legal landscape in the best interest of your business and users is really valuable. I also do think that data scientists and data engineers are really well positioned to do this type of work because they understand the technology better than anyone. I think historically, one of the biggest problems I've seen in this line of work, especially living in Washington, D.C., is that the policy and academic worlds are so separate from the technologists who are doing the building. And I think that leads to a large amount of consequences. Uh, One of them is that we do not have enough really strong technologists working in policy and working in the government. And I mean that in every way from advocating for data privacy rights for citizens and building unemployment websites that don't crash when a thousand people want to use them at the same time. Um, So there is not enough technical talent in the U.S. federal workforce, and that is a serious consequence. The flip side of that is we don't have enough people with a legal or ethics background, uh, and uh, more broadly speaking, a liberal arts background working in uh, commercial tech where they could add a lot of value if they're given the opportunity to do so. And when I think about the people in modern times who have really talked about tech ethics and the fact that it, these algorithms we're building can be really harmful. I mean, it's the people who are coming to mind are women and very often women of color. So there are academics like Margaret Mitchell, Emily Bender, Kathy O'Neill, Meredith Broussard. There is a wide body of modern scholarship on this issue. And when I watch documentaries like The Social Dilemma, it's hard not to be really infuriated by it because that documentary is basically retroactively interviewing executives from big tech companies who are who made millions if not billions off of these technologies and then are interviewed and effectively say yeah i did that i regret it sorry and instead of talking to people who who are in the weeds of this work and understand it very intricately and probably tried to warn those executives that these things would happen before they did and so that's a a big challenge i and i think data governance is is inherently cross functional it should not be left purely to policy or tech, technology people and so i think the more we can all collaborate cross-functionally and have a seat at the table, that's where uh, things start to really improve. Yeah, and I know that you said that we're at a kind of pivotal moment for this right now. What comes to mind for me is that in addition to your work on data governance on the ground, you also sit on the editorial boards of Springer's AI and Ethics Journal and the Open Access Data and Policy Journal at Cambridge University Press, where I think a lot of researchers are kind of sounding the alarm bells. What kind of emerging trends or interests or concerns are you seeing? 
This is a question particularly, I think, of relevance, for example, my undergraduate students who might be thinking about going into this line of work, or my data science students at Berkeley who might be interested in pursuing public interest technology jobs around data governance. Yep. I really enjoy serving on the editorial boards of those journals because they help me see what is happening in the, the global sphere of AI and ethics. And part of the reason I have enjoyed serving on the editorial boards of those two journals is that they genuinely try to take a global view of this issue. Uh, as with many aspects of modern tech, so much of it is built in the U.S., uh, built in the West, and it's centered on those voices. And I I read a really interesting paper uh, just last week for one of the journals, which was talking about a case study of misinformation on social media in Korea. And it really came to some interesting conclusions where it can't you can't prove that social media does this or that, especially when it comes to mass scale human behavior. But what this paper did find was a positive correlation between social media consumption as a primary news source and having more extreme ideological views, which translate into an increased likelihood to protest politically. And so what that paper concludes is that you can have a minority of people who have an outsized impact on policy. And the case study in this context was about misinformation regarding a, a politician in Korea who ultimately ended up resigning over mass protests. There's a lot more to it than I just said, but one, but one of the things that came out was that there were all of these rumors circulating about the politician on social media prior to the protests. And even after they were proven to either be unverified or false, that it, that did not change the way people felt about the politician at hand. And so even when people who hold these extreme views get information or facts to the contrary, it didn't, in this case study, tend to change how they felt. And they were still as likely to either protest and or hold these extreme views. And so the takeaway there is that this is not a Western problem. It, it is something that is occurring all over the world. And there is a pretty, I mean, many studies now have shown that if, if social media is your primary means of getting news and information, you are more likely to hold extremist political views and you are more likely to be involved in protests or other means of political participation that in, I mean, that is a federally protected right to a certain extent, but there is a correlation between that. And it was very interesting because so much of the discourse around that has centered, especially on the U.S. In recent months, it has centered on France as one example of of the retirement age and the protests around that. But although that's not really a social media case study. And so it was very interesting to read this center on Korea and see that this challenge exists globally and it's going to look different, but that was a, an interesting way of thinking about the problem. And so that was an example of a paper that I really enjoyed reading. So we're recording this in the second week of May, 2023, and the EU is in the middle of a contested negotiation over an EU-US data framework, the EU-US data privacy framework, an aim that the EU has strived to get toward for a while in order to make data protection standards and values into laws to protect citizens from surveillance, to provide additional protections for identifiable and personal data, and so on. What changes do you anticipate happening? I certainly hope that it would work. I think there are many 
very practical reasons along with ethical reasons why we would want a joint framework for data sharing like that to work uh, and i and i worry about the wide contrast be- between both data protection rights amongst U.S. citizens versus European citizens. And I also worry about the very drastically different attitudes that the that U.S. citizens and European citizens have towards regulation at all. So when I was watching the TikTok hearings earlier this year, it was, it was interesting to me to use a kind word because I am not saying at all that there are not very real issues with TikTok as a platform, as a data consumer. There, there are. But it was very clear to me watching those hearings that that the scapegoat in these issues was not even TikTok or ByteDance, the parent company. It was China. And that is interesting framing to me because it punts the problem yet again to another country and another part of the world uh, that we do not always have the best political relationships with. Meanwhile, there are a lot of issues with data consumption and protection amongst U.S based tech companies, and those are so well documented, I don't need to list them out here. At this point, I've lost track of how many times Facebook has gotten in trouble for misusing consumer data. And so when we frame it as an over there problem and the enemy as being a world away, that absolves the U.S. not only of responsibility in this situation, but it also, in my opinion, distracts Americans from the fact that we basically have no federally protected rights when it comes to our data. Meanwhile, you contrast that with Europeans who have quite a few rights when it comes to their data. For example, you in the the EU have something called the right to be forgotten, which means that if there are Google results in, let's say, France, that that you want erased from Google for particular reasons, you have a right to appeal that to have those particular results struck from the record. And that, to my knowledge, does not exist in the US. And, and likewise with GDPR legislation, which applies to European citizens, European citizens have the right to ask any company that has their data how that data is being used. And if they cannot get a clear answer, they are able to file a claim and get some sort of compensation for that. And so in Europe, it is expected that they will have these rights to their data in a way that I don't see happening amongst Americans. And I do think that is partially why data governance is so slow to get off the ground. The cultural appetite isn't really there. And so when I think about that joint framework, that's what I think could be the biggest blocker is you're dealing with drastically different attitudes towards regulation and data privacy. And it's very interesting framing to me because in Amer- in the U.S., I think broadly speaking, we think of regulation as taking away our rights. But in this context of, of data consumption, the regulation in Europe gives citizens more rights and autonomy over their personal data. And so, and by the way, GDPR applies to U.S. Uh, businesses as well. If you are in, if you are consuming data and holding data on U.S. on EU citizens, you are required to abide by GDPR. And a big company like Facebook or Google can afford to pay a fine. Your average small business that could sink them. And so, I think that is going to really resonate with organizations when those first claims start getting filed. But I think that could be a big blocker to progress given those drastically different attitudes towards both consumption but also consumer rights to data.
So in your view, should we be thinking in terms of national or international or transnational governance legislation? Is international or transnational governance even possible? And if so, how? Do we need a new governing body for this, kind of like a UN, for example, of data governance? How do multinational companies who operate in multiple different states and thus have the need to negotiate many different legal arenas of different data regulations maintain governance? Can they? That might be the hardest question of all uh, because for exactly what you just said, you're dealing with enormous numbers of countries, their own legal context, their own regulations. What I can say is that even looking at the nonprofit space, when we see that when on the ground leadership is is hired and compensated and empowered to make their own informed decisions about what is best for the people in their respective countries in this larger umbrella context, the results are often more successful. So when we think about, for, for instance, a large organization like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the ideal there would be to hire country directors, maybe even people at the C-suite level who can make these very informed, nuanced decisions about what is best for their people and their citizens in the context of this global NGO. And similarly, we're actually seeing that happen in the commercial world as well. So I've been reading a lot this year about how uh, there are more U.S.-based multinational companies who are hiring and investing in leaders at the C-suite level, even in China and India, in these very large markets, because they know that they do not have the expertise to make informed choices about the markets they serve, and they want to hire boots-on-the-ground leaders who have that expertise, who know their own markets really well to make those more informed choices, and the parallel I can draw is that in data governance, there is this increasing idea of data as a product. And basically what that means is that you apply product management thinking, which means that you are being strategic, you're taking the long view, you are writing roadmaps, and you are being very thoughtful about the product that you bring to market. The idea here is that you apply this attitude to data management, to data management, to data governance, and you manage data according to respective domains. So when we're talking about it in the context of one business, we're talking about having, let's say, five or six big, big data domains. These are the biggest areas like sales, marketing, customer success, where your organization is both ingesting and producing a lot of data. Then you create subdomains under that. So for instance, if you're looking at sales data, you would then have inbound leads, outbound leads, quarterly sales. Like these are all different areas. These are all subdomains of sales data. And then you have someone who is very senior in sales who can act as the steward, the data steward of that sales data. And this does not mean that the person has to perform perform a technical function. Um, So they don't need to be building uh, data pipelines. They don't need to become a data modeler. They don't need a PhD in statistics. The idea here is that they, as the sales lead in an organization, understand that data and its context better than anybody else in the organization. And they should thus have a hand in managing that sales data as a domain. And they should take that product ownership mindset. So when we think about the con- the concept of data governance in this multinational context or this cross-functional context, I think the the best way to approach it is to think, 
who is the person closest to that data at hand and how can I bring them into this work to make sure that their opinions and their uh, informed decisions are being heard and accounted for. I think we have time for one last question. I teach a course on data science and human values to graduate students at UC Berkeley. What do you think that they should know or understand or consider or have on their radar as they go into data science jobs? I do think that the first line of defense against this work is embedding exactly this type of discussion we're having into the data science curriculum because I, as mentioned before, think that there are areas of policy and governance that do not have enough technologists in the room. I also see the consequences of people who are incredibly bright. They have very high technical acumen. They know a lot about a very particular subject, but they do not have that focus on users. They do not have that background in liberal arts. They don't have that long view of what they're actually building and why and for whom. And I, I feel very strongly that classes like the one you're teaching are a huge way that we can educate the next generation of technologists. I'm heartened by the fact that when I talk to students uh, at the university and graduate levels that they are thinking about these things. I teach a graduate course in interaction design at George Washington University. And just this past semester, I had a student unprompted ask me, what do you think the impact of generative AI like ChatGPT is going to be on designers? Is it going to replace designers? The fact that they're even asking the question is really important because it shows that they're thinking about it. And I do genuinely see that Gen Z is thinking about this in a way that my generation was not, that the generations before that were not. And I think that's why this this cross-functional education is so valuable. I And, and I, it goes the other way. I think as people in more of a liberal arts background, I have an academic liberal arts background, even though I work in tech, and we can no longer say, oh, I don't, I'm not a data person. I'm not a math person. I can't, I can't do this. That's not my, that's not my area. We also have to stop passing the buck to other people. So I think the more that we can integrate education and the more that we can uh, talk about, yes, talk about linear regression, but also talk about the end results of unvetted algorithms, that is going to drive a lot of progress. And again, I see parallels between education and the cross-functional nature of data governance because it's just not enough for one person to do all of this work alone. You really do need everybody in every area to some extent. And the more that we can foster that and it starts in the classroom, the better off we will all be. Well, thank you very much, Laura. Thank you, Deb. <laughs>